0: <laughs> Someone just check the sound for me, please. Just want to make sure it's working okay. Bismillah <sighs> Rahman Rabbil Alameen, أن لا إلا الله وحده Welcome to another lesson with Quranic progression and uh, as you probably know by now I think I was sent an email a few days ago inshallah ta'ala Today is our penultimate lesson which means that next week ta'ala, next Tuesday will be our final lesson of QP for this academic year uh, and the year subhanAllah has gone extremely fast so because there's only like two weeks left and last week Alhamdulillah we finished the Tafsir of al Anshiqaq uh, I don't think it really makes sense to start a brand new surah and maybe not, like just get one verse in if that just do an introduction and two, one or two verses and then we take a long break and then we, we come back Inshallah Ta'ala after the, the summer break so we'll do some specials this week and next week and i want to start a new topic in our specials so this will be like our third if you like series of specials or third kind of topic in specials uh, we've done we've started like two previously even though we don't really um, you know categorize them in that way but if we look at them in terms of just subject matter we've kind of like done two types of specials so far in QP the first is the major books of tafsir and that's like you look at the authors of tafsir, those books and then the methodology of those authors in their books of tafsir. that's like one kind of tafsir that we've done and we've covered a number of the uh, of the scholars of tafsir. I think we've done actually Al-Imam al and qurtubi and Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti a number of those books and inshallah ta'ala that's a series that will continue as we continue as well. The second type of special that we've done so far in QP is Quranic Sciences so whether we're looking at Qiraat whether we're looking at the science of waqf and ibtida, starting and stopping, whether it was an introduction to the the science of al rasam and al dabt, which is the Quranic script, uh, those types of issues that we're looking at also, which are Quranic sciences, uh, that's also something which we do in our specials. The third thing that inshallah ta'ala, the third type of topic that we're going to begin today, and it's something which I've alluded to in the past, I've mentioned in passing, I've said that it's something that we want to do and look at at some point, uh, is the uh, the major uh, schools of tafsir from the time of the Companions in the Tabi'een. So the three major schools of tafsir from the time of the Companions in the Tabi'een and those uh, major figures in our tafsir history, whose names we're, we're constantly mentioning and we're referring to constantly. Uh, we hear them each and every single week. week in week out these are the people whose names you're often hearing. Names like Mujahid, names like Ata, names like Saeed ibn Jubair, names like Al Hassan al Basri, names like Abu aliya and some of the companions also, no doubt, who are their teachers. Uh, rahimahumullah ta'ala wa anhum and so, those um, major names that we come across that we hear over and over again, we don't really know much about, we haven't really studied them in terms of their life and, and so on that's something which inshallah ta'ala we're going to look at in this third kind of topic within our specials so this week and next week will be that uh, and we're going to start uh, with the uh, the topic or, or i'm going to give a brief overview of, of what those uh, what those three major schools of tafsir were in the time of the companions and then we're going to start with one of them and start speaking about the school and its major personalities and then inshallah ta'ala you know, over time we'll we'll, we'll cover each school has one companion and a number of students, a number of foremost students. And then we'll continue, inshallah ta'ala, as we go through the three schools with those three companions and their major students. So today we're going to begin with the Tafsir School of Mecca, which is the Tafsir School of the Companion, Abdullah ibn Abbas. So the majority of today's lesson will be focused on a, uh, an introduction to Ibn Abbas عنه, and who he was and what he did and so on and so forth. But before we do that, just to give you a brief overview. This term, uh, the schools of tafsir, and we also have it in fiqh, by the way, the major schools of fiqh and so on, okay, from the time of the companions I'm speaking about, so I'm not speaking about the Madahib. the Madahib come later. We're speaking about the generation of the companions, the era of the companions. We have what we call the three major schools. We have the school of Mecca, we have the school of Medina, we have the school of uh, the school of Iraq. Those are the three major schools, and we use them for fiqh, we use them for tafsir, and we use them for different sciences also. Um, And so, per se, they're not necessarily to do with tafsir. This is an important point to remember and to understand. Why? Because when we're speaking about the schools, we're not speaking about an institution per se. It's not a building, it's not a university, it's not a school by its name. It's called a madrasa, a school, a center of learning. Because there is a center of learning that surrounds a single individual. And for the most part, those individuals are the same except in Medina. Except in Medina. So, when it comes to, for example, tafsir, or when it comes to the era of the companions, as we know, as the Muslim empire expanded, as the Muslim lands expanded during the Khilafat, during the different stages of the Khilafas in the time of Umar, primarily is where it started, uh, because Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, his khilafah was very short, only two or so years. Umar's time, then Uthman, then Ali, then in the Umayyad dynasty we have the massive expansion at a very phenomenal rate of the Muslim lands and the Muslim empire. So the companions they also dispersed within the different Muslim lands or what became uh, the Muslim lands and they settled there and as they settled they taught and so we call them the madrasa or the school. What we mean is a center of learning, a place of learning where people who were either resident or were visiting were able to come and study with some well-known personalities from amongst the companions. They're often known as the ulama or the fuqaha, the jurists and the scholars from amongst the companions. This doesn't mean that there weren't other companions that were teaching. This doesn't mean that there were other companions that perhaps were even more knowledgeable or more senior or older. But it just so happens as Allah Azza wa willed, as we've said before about the four madhabs that then formulated and became codified and that the Ummah accepted, which is the Maliki, Hanafi, Shafi, Hanbali, they're the four that Allah Azza wa Jal decreed would last. And they are the schools that then just became widespread across the Muslim Ummah. Does it mean that there were other scholars who were more knowledgeable, who were older, who were more senior, who also had a great deal of efforts in terms of, of that knowledge and so on? There were many, many hundreds uh, of them during those times of those four Imams and before them as well. But Allah does as He pleases and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a wisdom that He knows best. Allah decrees that certain people's knowledge will disperse. The students are well known. They're the ones that disperse that knowledge and other people their knowledge isn't as well dispersed uh, as, as perhaps those other companions whose knowledge became very well known. So we have these three centers of learning. We have Mecca, we have Medina and we have Iraq. These are the three major centers of learning in the time of the companions and we often say Iraq but Iraq to be honest is a big area right? Iraq's a country whereas Mecca and Medina are cities and so you can possibly say Kufa uh, and and sometimes Basra as well when it comes to Iraq so depending on how you want to do this and as we said remember these are formal things at that time it's just things that happen organically and so therefore you won't find for example that a Tabari said Oh, I went to this school of Mecca, or that school of Medina, or that school of Kufa. You don't really find that in the early generation, just as you don't find it when it comes to fiqh or hadith. However, usually, these three schools, these companions are dispersed there. When they came to these places, it's also important for us to remember, and this is one of the reasons why we don't necessarily call it a school of tafsir, even though it is something which is common terminology in our time, because those companions that settled there didn't only teach tafsir. So, for example, Ibn Abbas, عنهم, who we're going to discuss and, and study today, when he came to Mecca, he wasn't only teaching tafsir. He's teaching hadith, he's teaching uh, fiqh, he's teaching Arabic, he's teaching uh, poetry, he's teaching everything. All of the Islamic sciences he's teaching. So, it's not just like we have today that someone specializing in tafsir, like QP. QP is a tafsir class. Aopi is a fiqh class, we sometimes go off on tangents but primarily this is what we're teaching, the companions didn't do this, the companions didn't say I only do fiqh, I only do tafsir, I only do hadith, I only do aqidah." no because the companions they learned their knowledge all of it from the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. and the Prophet sallallahu through his explanation of the Quran, through his sunnah, he taught them all of the religion, the whole of the religion. So, those companions had all of the religion and, and, and many different facets of it. So, when they would teach, they would teach all of that. But no doubt, sometimes they're focusing on tafsir, the lessons primarily about Quran and tafsir. And sometimes it's about the Sunnah. And sometimes it's about Sirah, what happened in the times of Rasulullah, his life, aspects of wars, battles that took place. Sometimes it may be to do with rulings and ahkam and fiqh. And so, it differs in that sense, but the person is the same. And the students are primarily the same. And that's why the companions or the students rather the tabi'een who took the knowledge of those companions didn't only take from them tafsir. They took all of their knowledge. And that is how students are meant to be by the way. In our time we've had, we have this thing of specialization but it's not really the way that a person should seek knowledge. You go to a teacher, you learn from him everything that he teaches. So you learn from him when he teaches fiqh, you learn from him when he teaches hadith, you learn from him when he teaches aqeedah. You learn everything from him. And that's because you then get on a good understanding of not only that person's knowledge, but you also have a good understanding of your religion too. And so when you go to the next teacher you also do the same. So this is something which um which 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 you will find amongst the companions of the Allah So we have these three major schools. The first of them is in Mecca. And that's the one that inshallah, we're going to begin with and that is the school of Ibn Abbas and as we said school meaning a center of learning centered around a companion. Now as we know there were many companions that lived in Mecca, many that settled there. But Allah chose Ibn Abbas that his knowledge would be the one that would become widespread. He's the one that had many students and they would seek knowledge and learn from him and they would disperse that knowledge to the extent that then it became known almost as if it is the reading or the, or the center of learning of Ibn Abbas and so in Qiraat, in Quran, in reading Quran, in tafsir, in hadith, in fiqh, Ibn Abbas's knowledge is found everywhere. Anhuma. Mm-hmm. And that's because as we said his students took all of that knowledge and they dispersed all of that knowledge. So you can for example read the, the Qiraat of Ibn Kathir which we've mentioned before, which is the Qira'ah of the people of Mecca, and in its Senate, in its chain of narrators, when it goes back to the Prophet you will find as his companion, Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu And so in fiqh, you will find the fatwa, the fiqh of ibn Abbas in tafsir, the positions of ibn Abbas and his commentary, and so on and so forth. And ibn Abbas, عنهما, had a number of uh, major students. Major students, and those students are usually considered to be five that are the major We had many students, obviously, like countless students, but five that are considered to be his major students that then would hold onto and disperse the knowledge of Ibn Abbas. And they are Mujahid, Ikrimah, Tawus, Ata, and Saeed ibn Jubair. Taala, And each one, inshallah, we will discuss at the appropriate time this year, next year, the following year, inshallah, whenever we do a special. We're going to interchange. We're not just always going to be doing these specials. Sometimes we'll do a Quranic science one. Sometimes we'll go back to the methodology of the one. So it's like interchangeable. It's like a fluid thing as our specials are. Uh, but inshallah, over time we will cover all each and every single one of these. Then we have the Madrasa of Medina. Now the Madrasa of Medina differs when it comes to Mecca in the sense that when it comes to Quran. It's usually one companion that we're speaking about that was known for this particular aspect. But if it was to come to Hadith, for example, or if it was to come to Fiqh, it may be other companions that we may be speaking about. So when it comes to um, the issue of tafsir, and we speak about Medina, it's usually the companion Ubayy ibn Ka'b, that is considered to be the center of learning of Quran in the city of Medina. But if you were to look, for example, at Fiqh, or you were to look, for example, at tafsir, uh, not tafsir sorry, at Fiqh, or Hadith, you would say, no, it's not necessarily Ubay ibn Ka'b. In Hadith, you'd say, for example, it's Abdullah ibn Umar, رضي الله عنهما. Right? In, in Fiqh, for many years, you would say that it was Aisha, رضي الله عنها. And so it's not necessarily always one and the same person. Medina is slightly different in that way. And perhaps the reason why it's different in that way, and Allah knows best, different to Mecca, different to Iraq, is because Medina is and was the place of revelation and the place of the Prophet Wasallam and the capital of the Muslims and the place of learning Mahbatul Wahi as we call it the place of revelation where revelation descended where the companions in their multitude existed and so you have many major companions that live and reside and then pass away in Medina as opposed to Mecca no it's only the ones that travel and settle their back because we're not speaking about any companion in terms of Uh, just he met the Prophet on the final farewell hajj or he just spoke to the Prophet. No, we're speaking about those companions that spent years and months with the Prophet learning. Then they traveled out and they settled. So you look at those companions, that group of companions, which is then much smaller than the wider generation of companions that reached like maybe a hundred odd thousand by the time of the death of the Prophet. So in Medina there's still many of them. So there are literally people who are while versed in different things that people are going to for different reasons. So when it comes to Qur'an, it is Ubayy ibn Ka'b. And from Ubay ibn Ka'b's students, عن, we have Abu al and Zaid ibn Aslam and Muhammad ibn Kaab al-Quradi and others. But inshallah, these are the main ones that we're going to refer to. And then when it comes to the Iraqi school, the school of Iraq, you will find some scholars that divide it into two and some scholars that keep it as one. Those that divide it into two, they divide between Basra and Kufa. And they would say Basra is where Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu was, that's where he kind of resided, he became the imam of that type of area, and his students. But you will often find when people speak about Iraq, what they're referring to primarily, and this is what we're going to stick with as well, uh, just to make it easier for us, we have three centers of learning, is Kufa. And Kufa, the school, is the school of Abdullah bin Mas'ud. That's what we're going to refer to and that's what we're going to stick with. So we have Medina in Tafsir, which is Ubay ibn Ka'ab, in Mecca ibn Abbas, in Kufa or Iraq if you like, we have Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. I know that out of the two Abu Musa and ibn Mas'ud, ibn Mas'ud is much more senior in knowledge, in his Islam, in his time that he spent with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, much more senior than Abu Musa al-Ashari an. And so Ibn Mas'ud has also a number of very famous students such as alqamah Al-Musruq, and the and Shabi And all of these will be names that are very familiar to all of you who have been following QP over the number of years now that we've been doing this. Because these are names that we're always constantly repeating. So those that's like a brief overview. We have these three schools, inshallah, we're going to look at them in terms of the companions of each one. The three major teachers of each one, Ibn Abbas, Ibn Ibn ka'b Ibn Mas'ud. And then we're going to look at, inshallah ta'ala, the students as well. And then maybe after that, we'll look at maybe some of the other companions that were around those areas and maybe some of the other students, especially from the next generation that comes on, which is the about al But we'll see how we go. Primarily, we want to focus on this particular group. And one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on this also is because um, I think it's very important for us as students of tafsir, just as we're doing with the books of Tafsir, just as we're doing with Quranic sciences. Very important for us to know, especially that generation of companions and Tabi'een, that when the name like Mujahid or Tawus or Alqama or al Ali is mentioned, it's not just a name. We know a little bit, a little slightly more about these individuals than just simply a name. And I know that this isn't going to be an extensive, detailed study of the life of these people. But again, I don't think we necessarily need to do that and those that are interested inshallah, can probably find that information out for themselves. But what we want is, we want a good understanding of who these people were. Uh, so that inshallah, when those names are mentioned, especially with the tabi'een because at least with the companions we have some uh, kind of familiarity with them uh, and some of their stories and what happened. But when it comes to the students of those companions, I think for most of us other than the name, um, you know, it's not really much more. So. That's something inshallah, we're going to be looking at inshallah, ta'ala in this particular series. So we start today inshallah, ta'ala with the companion Abdullah bin Abbas radiyallahu Anhuma. And Abdullah bin Abbas I think doesn't really need much of an introduction. I think anyone that's a student of Tafsir would know at least a little bit about this great illustrious companion radiyallahu Anhuma, who despite his young age at the time of the death of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would go on to continue to be one of the greatest companions in terms of his knowledge and in terms of his understanding and in terms of his khidmah, his service to Islam in terms of the knowledge that he spread from not only the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam but the major companions that he then studied with because after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't just stop but he continued to study as we know and that meant that he spent time with the likes of Abu Bakr al-Umar al-Uthman and ali and many of the other major companions and he learnt from them and he narrated from them and he understood his religion in the way that they understood it and it is enough for him in terms of virtue the dua that the Prophet made for him صلى الله عليه وسلم ta'wil Oh Allah give him understanding of the religion and give him understanding of the Quran teach him the tafsir of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Ibn Abbas looked at those major companions, anyone that excelled over him and above him, he went to them and he studied. In Qur'an, Ubay ibn Ka'b and Zayd ibn Thabit. And in knowledge and hadith and sunnah and tafsir, he looked at Abu Bakr and umar and uthman and ali and Ibn Mas'ud and anyone, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf, all of these major companions that he was surrounded with. Because as we know, when the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi wasallam died in the famous story, Ibn Abbas said to his friends from the Ansar who were young boys like him, and will speak about their age in a short while. Young boys like him, let us go and study and learn. And they said, oh Ibn Abbas, why should we go and study when amongst us is Abu Bakr and umar Uthman and Ali? No one needs us. You think people are going to come and ask you, oh Ibn Abbas, when Abu Bakr and umar are still alive? So he ignored them, and he went and he studied and learned, and he would go and stand and spend time outside the door of Ubay bin Ka'b Rahimahullah wanted to learn from him Quran, and sometimes after Dhuhr he would bring his sheet, meaning his robe, and he would place it on the ground in the hot sun on the desert ground outside of the house of Ubay, and he would sleep there, rest there because it's the time after Dhuhr which is a siesta time, waiting for Ubay ibn Kaab to come out, and Ubay ibn Kaab would come, Rahimahullah, and he would see the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi them on the ground before him, a young lad, and he would say to him. O cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, O son of the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, if you'd only call for me, I'd come to you. So Ibn Ibn Abbas would say, no, we were taught to come to our teachers. This is how we honor our teachers and respect them. And so then Ubay ibn Kab would kiss him on his forehead and he would say, this is how we respect the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas is the, as we know, the cousin of the prophet sallallahu he is the son of the uncle of the prophet sallallahu al abbas and al abbas himself is someone who is a major personality in our religion not only because of his close link to the prophet sallallahu his close relationship is his paternal uncle but also because of how much the the prophet sallallahu loved him and the prophet sallallahu said concerning him as a lesson to all of the ummah the abi, That the paternal uncle of a person is like their father. Your father's brother should be to you like your father. That's what the Prophet told us وسلم, because some of the Quraysh, they used to uh, have certain... and some of the companions used to treat Abbas in a certain way and Abbas used to feel that kind of uh, you know, the lack of love coming from some of the companions. So the Prophet became upset and he said this to show people that if you love me, you love my uncle because my uncle to me, my paternal uncle, is like my father. And Al-Abbas is therefore the uncle of the Prophet, the father of Abdullah. And so Abdullah ibn Abbas already automatically benefits from coming from a family that is close to the Prophet, as close as you can possibly get without being a direct child of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And as we know Ibn Abbas عنهما, um, has many many virtues. Ibn Abbas عنهما, was very young as we said um, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam passed away and the scholars of history and seerah they differ as to exactly when he was born. One position amongst them is that he was born in the year of the hijrah that's one position amongst the scholars of tafsir that he was born in the year of the Hijrah. um and so that's something which you will find mentioned by some of the uh, by some of the scholars and that's based actually upon a statement of ibn abbas himself and that is that he said that i i was 10 years old when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam died that's one narration from ibn abbas himself and ibn abbas saying that means if he was ten at the time of the death of the Prophet, you know that he spent only the Prophet only spent ten years in Medina. So therefore he would be born in the year of the Hijra. That's one position. The second position, which is the more well known position, is that he was born three years before the Hijra. And he was born in the Sha'ab of Abi Talib. So that period of Meccan history, the period of the Meccan sirah when the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims and his clan Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib were being boycotted by the Quraysh financially, politically, economically, socially they were being boycotted and they were made to live in a valley in Mecca and they were given no food, no drink, no one was allowed to speak to them or trade with them or interact with them. It is said that Ibn Abbas was born there and there are narrations to that extent that Abbas told the Prophet Sallallahu because Abbas wasn't a Muslim at the time nor was Abu Talib but because they were family to the Prophet Sallallahu they were also boycotted and so Al-Abbas it is said in one narration came to the Prophet Sallallahu and he said to him that indeed my wife Umm fadl she is pregnant and she was pregnant with Ibn Abbas anhu, and that seems to be the more well-known narration that he was born three years before the Hijrah therefore that also then Supports the other narration of Ibn Abbas That when the Prophet ﷺ died He was 13 years old And as we have mentioned before I believe We definitely mentioned it in our Isnad course When we were going through the book of Shamail by a tirmidhi But I think we might have mentioned it here also That the Arabs used to have this thing of rounding up or rounding down In their speech Sometimes they round numbers So they go to the closest number So when he says I was 10 He's rounding down and really was his 13 years old. And that's similar to the statement of Anas when he said the Prophet spent 10 years in Mecca as a prophet, 10 years in Medina. But we know he spent 13 years in Mecca as a prophet because many of the other narrations of the companions say 13. So the scholars reconcile and they say that Anas is rounding down as the Arabs used to do because it's just easier to say 10 than 13, especially in Arabic when you have to mention both numbers. And so, Um, it's possible that that's what Ibn Abbas was doing as well and he is therefore uh, even at that age 13, very young at the time of the death of the Prophet and Ibn Abbas's mother her name is Umm Al-Fadl Umm Al-Fadl Bint Al-Harith and they differ as to exactly what her name was Uh, and some say it was Lubaba But but she's famously known by her Kunya Umm Al-Fadl, Al-Fadl being the elder brother of Ibn Abbas. So Abbas had a number of sons. Al-Fadl is one of them and Al-Fadl is the one that the Prophet ﷺ when he was going on his farewell hajj for a period of going from that trip of, from Arafah to Muzdalifah back to Mina. For a period of it Al-Fadl rode with him and for another period of it Usama ibn Zaid rode with him. So Al-Fadl is someone that was close to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and he said that when the Prophet passed away, these were the companions that got down into his grave, Al-Fadl and washed him and, and so on. Abbas and Al-Fadl, his son and his other son Qutham. These were the people that came because they were the closest of the relatives of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi Ali obviously, also radiyallahu anhu So, uh, Ummul Fadl is the mother of Abdullah bin Abbas and Ummul Fadl is the sister of Maymuna. Maymuna being one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Maymuna bint al-Harith. So not only is the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam related or Ibn Abbas related to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam by virtue of his father, that they're first cousins, but also he's related to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that one of the wives of the Prophet Wasallam is his maternal aunt. So he would benefit not only from his father's connection. But he would also enter in and upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his private space in his home when he was with Maymunah. And we have a number of hadith in Al-Bukhari, other than Al-Bukhari, when Ibn Abbas would spend the night with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he used to be with the, in the house of Maymunah radiallahu anha. And therefore he has a, an amazing opportunity, one of the reasons why he excelled in terms of his knowledge and in terms of his fiqh and understanding and tafsir is because he spent the little time that he was with the Prophet sallallahu he spent the almost all of it with the Prophet sallallahu and one of the things and you know we'll, we'll go on to show this now because most of the uh, the positions of of the scholars most of them are of the position that Ibn Abbas only came to Mecca at the conquest of Mecca sorry to Medina at the conquest of Mecca so it's only after the conquest of Mecca, around the 8th year of the Hijra that Al-Abbas and Abdullah and his family and Umm al all of them moved to Medina from Mecca. So in that time period, which is the conquest of Mecca, around the 8th year of the Hijra, to the death of the Prophet wasallam in the early part of the 11th year of the Hijra, he's only with him maybe for like 20 months, 2 years maximum. That's what he did. That's how much time he had with him. But he was able to use that time efficiently. And this also shows to you one of the things about the tarbiyah that the Prophet gave to the youngsters and the youth. And that is that despite this child, this young boy, because he's probably at the age when he first comes to Medina, 11 years old, he di- and he's 13 by the time he dies Wasallam. So it's like 11 years old. But he would give him time, especially the youngsters that showed an ability to learn that were very astute, very smart, very keen, very observant. Those young companions like Anas ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, even though some of them are slightly older, some are slightly younger, but that's like one generation of companions. These are the companions who later on become the ulama of their time, the ulama of their generation, especially after many of the senior companions pass away. And so the Prophet would allow these companions, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, all of these companions are relatively young at the time of the Prophet's death. But look at how the Prophet gives them time, allows them to focus, allows them to learn. And not only that, but he instilled within them a love for knowledge that when he passes away they don't stop, they continue. They go to Abu Bakr, they go to Umar, they go to Uthman. and if you read Al-Bukhari, you will see statements and narrations of Ibn Abbas when he says that there were certain things which I didn't understand so I would wait to speak to Umar and as you know Umar was a man that people respected and they had a slight trepidation of him, they feared him because of his aura and because of the way that he carried himself And so in one narration Ibn Abbas says that I was waiting for the optimum time to ask Umar certain questions until once we were travelling. And he went to go and relieve himself, so I thought, okay, I can catch him by himself now. So I went and carried water for him. And then I asked him the question that I had. So he's eager to nan, an. And this is something which is important for our youngsters because not only about studying with, you know, the, in the time of the companions, who's the primary teacher? The Prophet, wasalam, no doubt. But the Prophet, wasalam, with some of these companions, only had two, three, four, five years. Because they were young in age, and then he passed away sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But what he instilled within them, and what they understood themselves, is I don't just stop, but I continue and I carry on. I continue and I carry on to learn. So who are the other people that I can learn from now? Right. So in our time, for example, I know a number of of, of people, my friends, who when Sheikh Ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, passed away in Saudi Arabia, he used to be the Mufti of Saudi Arabia, died... Um, you know, like maybe 98, 1999, 1998, something like that, There were people who had just started to study with him, only been with him two, three years. There are other students who spent decades with him, but these new, this new generation only spent two, three years with him and then he passed away, ta'ala. and he was old at that time anyway, he was old in age in his eighties. But what he instilled within that generation, that love for knowledge, is that even if that teacher dies, the sheikh passed away, They didn't just stop, they then looked for his senior students because by that time his senior students are in their 60s. They're in their 60s and so they're looking for them and now they're going to spend time with them. And some of them till today are still students of those same students of Sheikh Ibn Ba'z. 20-25 years have passed since the Sheikh passed away This is something very important about knowledge in terms of a methodology, in terms of an understanding. Yes, you have senior scholars. Maybe you only got to spend a year with them, maybe you only spent six months with them, maybe you didn't meet any of them. But now that they've passed away, you don't just stop, you don't just think, okay, well, that's it, it's done, it's over, I didn't get them, chance over, I've missed the train. No, you look at the major students that they have, and then you start to study with them. And that's always been the way of Islam, always been the way of Islam. And you will find, for those of you that read with me some of the books that we've done on Islam, uh, in, in, in terms of the etiquettes of seeking knowledge and learning knowledge, where some of the scholars would travel to meet some of the major scholars of their time, and by the time they got to them, because in those days they're traveling by land, takes some weeks if not months, they would get there and the sheikhs passed away. So someone would say to them, don't worry, if he passed away, that person was his contemporary, go and study with him. What if he passed away, that person there, that's his major student, go on study with him. And this is what they have always done, rahimahumullah ta'ala. So Ibn Abbas and his family only came to Mecca after the conquest of Mecca. However, Ibn Abbas and his mother al Fadl were from the early Muslims. They accepted Islam many years before. Abbas, the uncle, there is a difference as to when he عنه, accepted Islam. Some say it was after Badr, some say slightly before Badr. And what seems to be the case and Allah knows best is it was around that time of the Battle of Badr. But at the Battle of Badr, Al-Abbas fought with the Mushrikeen of Quraysh. He fought on the side of the Quraysh because he was still in Mecca. So as everyone was leaving, he was forced to leave as well, and he was captured as a prisoner of war. And he actually said to the Prophet ﷺ, "I have accepted Islam, so you can't ransom me, you can't take money from me, I'm a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ said, I don't know. You came with these people, you fought with them, we've caught you as a prisoner of war. If you have Islam in your heart, Allah knows. So for us, we can only judge you on what is apparent. And so he made him pay the ransom. And there's a nice story about him and Umm al-Fadl, Abbas when he left for the battle of Badr, he took his wealth, he gave it. No one knew about it except except him and his wife Umm al-Fadl. And he said, if something happens to me, take this wealth and do X, Y, he gave her a whole story. So when he came to the Prophet after the battle and he was captured, he said, oh, Messenger of Allah, I have nothing left. The Prophet said, what about what you gave to Umm al-Fadl and what you said to her? That was one of the miracles of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam anyway. The point being here that Allah in the verse قُلِّ فِي أَيْدِيكُم مِّنَ يَعْلَمِ اللَّهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ خَيْرًا That verse towards the very end of Surat Al-Anfal it is said that it was revealed concerning Al-Abbas رضي الله عنه. So even though his Islam was around the time of Badr Ummul Fadl and her son it is said that they accepted Islam before this uh, uh, Abdullah bin Abbas is young anyway uh, even at the time of the Battle of Badr. But he grew up in Islam, meaning he didn't know anything except Islam because his mother had accepted Islam before that. And that's what Ibn Abbas used to say that me and my mother were from amongst those people that Allah said concerning the people in the time of the Prophet that they must make Hijrah to make the migration as an obligation upon them to leave the lands of Mecca and the Quraysh. إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضْعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لا ولا يهتدون In which Allah said unless you are the weak from the men, the women and the children that have no ability to leave. Ibn Abbas used to say, me and my mother were from those people. we just couldn't leave. we didn't have the ability to leave. and that is why they they um, stayed within within the uh, within the city of of Mecca until after the conquest of Mecca and then they arrived in Medina. So when the Prophet sallallahu and, and, wasallam and these companions did arrive in Medina as we said the Prophet sallallahu wasallam gave time to them not only because of his family relationship but because he saw within Ibn Abbas an astuteness, a, a wisdom, a knowledge a, a yearning for knowledge, a thirst for learning that the Prophet sallallahu wasallam recognized as we mentioned when he made those duas uh, to them One of the things that shows this astuteness is that one day the Prophet ﷺ was speaking to a man? And Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, said to his son Abdullah, I don't know what's wrong with the Prophet, ﷺ, but he seems to be ignoring me. This is what Abbas says to his son Abdullah. Abdullah's young at that time. So Abdullah says, Oh my father, I don't think he was ignoring you, but he was busy speaking to someone. Abbas said, I didn't see him speak to anyone. Abdullah said, I think he was speaking to someone and that's why he was busy. So eventually the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam comes and Abbas says, O Messenger of Allah, were you speaking to someone? Because Abdullah said, you were speaking to someone but I didn't see anyone. So the Prophet Sallallahu looked at Abdullah and he said, did you see him? And Abdullah said, yes, O so Messenger of Allah, I saw him. He said, that was Jibreel that came in the form of a man speaking to me. And so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam could recognize within Abdullah this astuteness. Abbas didn't see anything, didn't recognize, didn't pay attention. Abdullah sees and recognizes this, radiyallahu an, And that is why Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu Anhuma after the death of the Prophet, وسلم, a few years later, from becoming like a 13-year-old young boy who is from the Junior Companions, within a few years, by the time of the Khilaf of Umar, radiyallahu an. He is one of the senior advisors of Umar that Umar used to bring close to him. As we know, he was from his shura and he would trust him and he would ask him and he would seek his position not because of his age or his relationship to the Prophet or anything else but because of the knowledge that he had and his understanding of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu said Qur'an ibn Abbas He said what an amazing interpreter of the Qur'an ibn Abbas is even though he's much younger than him. Ibn Mas'ud is much older than him. And it's mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, a narration in Sahih al-Bukhari that if you read, it's amazing. In that narration it says that Ibn Abbas <clears throat> during the time of Umar عنه, would teach Qur'an to Abdul Rahman ibn Auf radiallahu Abdul Abdurrahman ibn Auf is much much older than Ibn Abbas. He's at the age of his father. He's like an uncle to him. Someone who was from the earliest of Muslims, from the 10 promised paradise as we know, a major companion. But when he came to Quran, Ibn Abbas is a specialist. And that's amazing because it's something which also we've lost over time. That thing that someone goes to a a person who's a specialist irrespective of their age, irrespective of who, they they just want to go to them because they recognize that this person is an expert in their field and they're willing to humble themselves to go and learn from someone who may be much younger than them in age. That's something which the companions didn't have any problem doing. Abdul Rahmari ibn Auf would learn Qur'an from someone that's like a son to him or a nephew to him in age. He would go and learn from him. And ibn Abdul Rahmari ibn Awf isn't just a nobody. He's from the major companions of the Prophet And that's why Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas عنه, used to say that I haven't seen anyone like this boy. This young lad in terms of understanding, in terms of knowledge, in terms of intellect and intelligence and wisdom, haven't seen anyone like him. And he used to say, and that is why Umar used to ask him in those issues where normally he would only gather the people of Badr because there was a saying of Umar that if an issue came to him that was difficult, he would gather the people of Badr. But alongside him, there were a few exceptions and from those exceptions was Abdullah ibn Abbas And that's why Ibn Mas'ud an said concerning Ibn Abbas, Ibn Abbas is much younger than us. Had he been our age and learnt what we like, spent that much time with the Prophet the way that we did, he would have become far, far more advanced than the rest of us. Meaning that he only had two, two and a half years and this is what he's done. Imagine he accepted Islam and was with the Prophet in the early days. If he was old enough to have been there at the beginning of Islam and go through all of that, how much more knowledge would he have been given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And that's why Ibn Umar عنه, used to say that I don't know anyone more knowledgeable concerning the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than Ibn Abbas عنه, And his students used to say the same thing Ibn Abbas comes and he settles in Mecca and he becomes from the leaders of the Muslims in Mecca in terms of knowledge and understanding and fatwa and fiqh and hadith and tafsir ibn Abdillah ibn Utbah ibn Mas'ud from the seven Fuqaha of Medina from one of the great scholars of the Tabi'in. He said that we used to come to Ibn Abbas and anything that you wanted to learn, any science, you would find it with Ibn Abbas. He said if you wanted to learn Quran, there was more, no one more knowledgeable in Quran. If you wanted to know about the Sunnah, no one more knowledgeable than the Sunnah because we know that Ibn Abbas is from the most prolific narrators of Hadith. From those six, seven companions that are the most prolific narrators, they narrated the most Hadith. Ibn Abbas is from amongst them, radiyallahu anhumah. So he would say, if you want to learn Sunnah, he would teach you Sunnah. If you wanted to learn Fiqh and rulings, he would teach you rulings. If you wanted to learn Arabic language, he would teach you Arabic. If you wanted to learn Arabic poetry, he would teach you poetry. He's saying that we didn't find anything that we wanted, except that he would have it for us. Meaning, any knowledge that we sought, he would have it. Uh, he would have it for us. And that's why La'amash used to say that it used to be said about Ibn Abbas that if he speaks, if you see him, he was from the most handsome of people. And if he speaks, then he was from the most eloquent of people. And if he taught, then he was from the most knowledgeable of people, رحمه Taala. تعالى. And thought the student of Ibn Abbas used to say, that I've never seen a gathering like the gathering of Ibn Abbas. There are a few companions, by the way, whose students became so many. And it's mentioned in the books of, I think we mentioned this in some of the books that we did again in the snad, about the etiquettes of seeking knowledge and learning knowledge but there are narrations in those books that speak about a few companions and and they mention this as a chapter heading to show that it's permissible that if there are the number of students is so many that the teacher requires that they have to get up on a stage or a platform in order to teach them it's permissible right so if you have like five six students and you're sitting on a stage and there's only five doesn't like it looks strange but sometimes there's so many students that the teacher has to be on a high platform for his voice to project and for everyone to be able to benefit and see him. Ibn Abbas is one of those few companions that happened to. It is said that in Mecca sometimes he would have to go upon the roof of his house because they're only single-story homes. He would go onto the flat roof area and he would address people because of how many people there were. And some of his students said that Ibn Abbas would come after Fajr, after the morning, after the sun had risen. And he would say to his students, because there would be a multitude of people outside, he would say to his students, Go out and say to the people that if you've come to learn Quran, come in. So those people that wanted to learn Quran, tafsir, they would come in. Then he would finish with them and he would say to his students, Go and ask. Anyone that wants rulings and fiqh, come in. They would come in and then he would finish with them, they would go. Anyone that wants to learn Sunnah, come in. They would come in, finish, go. Anyone that wants to learn Arabic, come in. And this way, by the time Dhuhr came, you would finish from this multitude of people. rahimah Rahimahullah Ta'ala al And so Ibn uh, Ibn Abbas عنهما, was from amongst those companions who not only then became known in terms of his uh, in terms of his knowledge and so on, but in Hajj he became the Imam of Hajj. Because they used to be in every single Hajj from the time of the Prophet wasallam. that year when he appointed Abu Bakr an, as the leader of Hajj, as the Imam of Hajj, the companions continued this. They would send one person, sometimes it would be the Khalifa themselves, or they would send someone, nominate someone to be the Imam of Hajj that continued for many, many centuries in Islam. So from the people that used to be the Imams of Hajj in his time, Ibn Abbas. And after him, his student Ata rahimahullah ta'ala as you will mention insha'Allah whenever we come to discuss his uh, particular biography rahimahullah ta'ala and from the things that it said about him when he performed hajj is that one day he gave, or one year rather he gave a tafsir his, his sermon in Arafah was a summarized tafsir in some narrations of Surah Al-Baqarah in some narrations of Surah Al-Nur that was his khutbah Students of Ibn Abbas said, by Allah, if the Romans listened to this tafsir, they would have accepted Islam. If they had been there and heard his summary of the tafsir and his commentary of this surah of the Quran, it would have been enough for them to accept Islam radiyallahu anhu wa And he also became a trusted, as we said, advisor to a number of the Khulafa, Umar in his time, Uthman, in his time, and Ali, his cousin, in his time, and Ali would often depend upon him, and he would listen to him, and he would often change his position depending upon the, st- the statements of Ibn Abbas. There were a group of people in the time of Ali who uh, apostated from Islam, and their apostation from Islam was because they made Ali gave him divinity, said Ali is like a god. So he burned those people alive, Ali when Ibn Abbas heard he said that had I been there I would have said to Ali don't, don't burn them because I heard the Prophet say وسلم, only Allah punishes with the fire. So when Ali heard this he said had I had Ibn Abbas been with me I would have listened to him. And then when in the time of Ali عنه, when a group of people 6,000 wanted to oppose Ali radiallahu who used to be formerly in his army and they rebelled against him. He sent Ibn Abbas to go and speak to them and to debate with them and Ibn Abbas debated with them, 3,000 in the stead came back to the army of Ali, they repented and the other 3,000 who became from the Khawarij as we know so Ibn Abbas uh, after the death of Ali settled in Mecca as we know and he spends his whole life spends his whole life teaching giving knowledge uh, teaching the people and so on and he was from amongst those companions as we know who were from the scholars of fatwa amongst the companions. Ibn Qayyim, he says that the companions were many, and from amongst them, there were some 100 or 120, 130, he says, roughly around that number, who were known to be the muftis of the companions. They would give fatwa. So some of them in the life of the Prophet, sometimes in the time of Abu Bakr and Umar, these people were known to be the scholars of fatwa. These were the scholars that even amongst the companions, they were known to give fatwa. They were known for their knowledge, they were known for their understanding, they were known for their understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And then Ibn Qayyim, ibn Qayyim ta'ala, in his book, Ilam al he says, and from those 120, 130 odd, seven are considered to be prolific in this, meaning they often gave fatwa, and they did this a great deal. And he names those seven, and he says, Umar, Ali, Ibn Mas'ud, Aisha, Zayd ibn Thabit, Ibn Abbas and Ibn Umar. These seven were considered to be from the most prolific of the scholars of Fatwa. So even amongst the companions, they were known for this. And there are many narrations. If you look, for example, at the Muslim and the many hundreds of hadith that he's gathered from the collection of Ibn Abbas. It shows to you how prolific he was in uh, in his fiqh and in his knowledge and his narration of the Sunnah. And that's why Tawus his famous student said that I met 70 companions 70 companions all of them if they disagreed would return back to Ibn Abbas all of them if they disagreed they would return back to Ibn Abbas and Mujahid his other student, said that I've never met anyone who was better and more wise in giving fatwa than Ibn Abbas and Ikrimah also from the students of Ibn Abbas and his freed slave, he said that I once met Muawiyah when he was the Khalifa and he said to me, your master, meaning Ibn Abbas, your master is the most knowledgeable person that I've come across, meaning that is still living during this time, during my time, during the time of Muawiyah when he became the Khalifa of the Muslims. So Ibn Abbas said, continued in mecca and he stayed there for the remainder of his life and he stayed there until he passed away in the year 63 or 68 rather of the hijra 68 of the hijra and he actually passed away in a taif according to um according to to many of the scholars but he remained in mecca for the majority of his life and there he taught quran he taught tafsir and as we will and we'll mention inshallah, when we come on to the biography of mujahid that he had general uh, sessions of tafsir, and then he had special sessions that of knowledge rather, of teaching that he gave to his special students and that's why people like Mujahid and Tawus and Ikrimah these are considered to be his, his major students, his primary students because they used to come into his private lessons and that's why someone asked, I think it was either by Ikrimah or Tawus they said to another scholar you used to go and attend the lessons of Ibn Abbas. Was Tawus with you? I think it was about Tawus anyway. Or maybe it was Ikrim. I can't remember exactly now. But let's say Tawus. Was Tawus with you in those lessons? And he said, no. Tawus used to be in the private lessons. Meaning that these were general lessons where he used to tell people, come ask me, ask me. Then he would have time for these special students of his that he would give to them knowledge. And that's also something which the Salaf used to do. That if they found amongst people, that they should give them more time, put some more effort in for them because of what they can inshallah, ta'ala accomplish and carry and and teach, then that's something which they also used to do. And that's why Mujahid said that I covered the whole Qur'an with Ibn Abbas three times from cover to cover and in one narration, 30 times from cover to cover. I will stop him at every verse and ask him concerning it. And that's an amazing amount of knowledge to be taken from a single companion. And it is said that uh, the hadith of Ibn Abbas that we have a uh, number one over 1600 hadith, 1600 narrations that we have uh, in Al-Bukhari, in Sahih Al-Bukhari over 120 and in both Al-Bukhari and Muslim uh, 120 or so in Al-Bukhari 49 or 50 or so in the Sahih of the Imam Muslim and the Muslim of Imam Ahmad counts for him 1,625 hadith 1,625 as we know Musnad is where the author gathers hadith according to the narrator according to the name of the companion so all of Ibn Abbas's hadith are collected together, irrespective of the topic and what they're speaking about, all of them are mentioned together, and so he collected for him 1,625 hadith from the Prophet and this is despite the relatively short time that he spent with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and that's why the, uh, the the scholars who came after him, uh, and those people who studied with him, such as Tawus and ikrimah and others, they came and they studied with Ibn Abbas because of the knowledge that he had, and also because he lived for a long time. He passed away, as we said, in the year sixty-eight of the Hijrah. It is said that he was in a Taif at the time. And he was around 70 years old and the person who led his janazah was Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah the son of Ali radiallahu anh, from a later marriage and he was therefore buried also in uh, Al-Taif and I think until today apparently his, 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 uh, his grave or the area of his grave or the place of his grave is still well known until today and Allah knows best. Uh So that's like a brief summary of the life of Ibn Abbas and his his knowledge and his studies and his time with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his teaching. And as we know, like the companions, like their methodology was everything that they learned from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and from the major companions, if they were the younger ones, from the major companions, what they learned from them. And that was the basis of their knowledge. And Allah Jal gave to them that ability to preserve this religion we owe them a great debt, these companions, people like Ibn Abbas, we owe them a great debt for what we have in terms of our tafsir and in terms of the sunnah and in terms of what we have preserved from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so he is the leader of the madrasa of Mecca or the main teacher of the madrasa of Mecca. And inshallah ta'ala next week we will look بإذن الله ta'ala into one of his students. Okay, any questions Inshallah. Otherwise we'll conclude for today. Okay, in page by page tafsir we mentioned only the people of Insight see the signs of Allah. How would you define a sign of Allah and can almost anything be termed a sign of Allah in the sense that train can be a sign from the signs of Allah? Yeah, so a sign of Allah is anything that you connect back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So usually the signs of Allah جل, either in his creation or revelation those are the two major categories so creation what you see and usually it is natural creation because uh, a train or a car has a man-made process in it as well no doubt Allah جل, is the one who gave the ability and he's the one that gave that person that intelligence uh, and wisdom and, and knowledge to be able to invent that thing uh, and so you can look at that also as a sign of Allah indirectly but primarily they speak about the major signs of Allah as being what you see in the creation of Allah. What no one else can do except Allah Jalla. Because train can be rec- replicated. But who can replicate a mountain? Who can replicate the ocean, the heavens, the sun, the moon? And then you have the signs of Allah Azzawajal in revelation. And what I mean by only the people of insight see the signs of Allah. Meaning everyone sees these signs, especially the signs of creation, of nature. But only the people of insight make that connection back to Allah A lot of people see them and they pass them by or they see them and they say, oh it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's nice, but it doesn't really necessarily bring them closer to Allah or allow them to believe in Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la alone. Can we put up pictures of animals, people on the wall with no facial features? This is an issue of difference of opinion. Um, and issues of difference of opinion, especially issues like this, because we have certain hadith that speak about how the angels don't enter into a house where there are pictures and then other the scholars saying permissible and so on and so forth. My view always is why Why do it? Why risk something like that? That an angel doesn't enter, or the angels don't enter into your house. So issues of difference of opinion, if there's not a need especially, because usually with these things it's not a need, it's just like a want or a desire or a whim. If there's not a need then why, why risk uh, something which may be a uh, something which may take away from you and your household barakah and the blessing of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and Allah knows best. Are there any books you would recommend regarding some of the tafsir of Quran by Ibn Abbas in Arabic? There is a, there are books that have been gathered. They've gathered all of the narrations of Ibn Abbas in tafsir, and Ali ibn Abi Talha, one of the scholars who was from the students of the students of Ibn Abbas, he gathered the tafsir of ibn abbas and it is said he gathered it from mujahid and he placed it and, and it was a manuscript that, that he wrote and it ended up in egypt i don't know if he traveled and settled in egypt and that's why he was there or he just happened to enter into egypt but imam mahmad used to say in his time when he was in baghdad in iraq that if someone was to travel from iraq to egypt to benefit from that parchment or that manuscript of the tafsir of ibn abbas that was written by ali bin Talha, then it would not be a wasted journey and so uh, there, there's always been a tafsir what we call the tafsir of Ibn Abbas in terms of a manuscript in that sense um, it's not a book that was written by him it's just narrations that his students gathered either from Ibn Abbas or from his major students that came after him and I think it's been published or uh, something similar to it has been published in Arabic as for in English then I'm not aware but in Arabic yeah definitely there is. there are books that speak about his methodology in tafsir speak about his his, his famous narrations in Tafsir. there are books that you will find in the Arabic language and Allah knows best Okay inshallah ta'ala uh, we'll conclude here for today Barakallahu Fikum wa salallahu ala nabiyeh muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa salamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh